of Worship, your source for commentary and discussion on worship, theology, and culture. I'm your host, Dr. Jonathan Michael Jones. Hello and welcome to the Act of Worship podcast. This is Dr. Jonathan Michael Jones. Great to be here today discussing matters of worship, theology, and culture. And I am about to begin, well today I am beginning, a series for you. I think it's going to be a six-part series, but I'm not totally sure because it's a work in progress. So we'll find out. And the material from this um, will end up in a book. And so it's something I'm working on. I'm still kind of working on the title, um, but I, I think it's going to be something co- like The Full Council. Uh, I think that's going to be the title, and um, uh, what this is going to be is a, a discussion of the benefits of liturgy from a free perspective, and probably like many who listen, uh, I come from a free church tradition meaning that we did not utilize a lectionary. Um, And so it wasn't until later in life that I understood and realized the benefits of liturgy. And so today I am going to be talking about the first benefit that I see here, and that is living in the story of God. Um. Christian worship tells the story of God, tells the story of God, his people, and his work within his people. But nonetheless, the story of God is not yet yet complete. I mean, that's obvious because God is still working within his people today. And so worship should not only tell the story, but allow God's people to participate in that story. In other words, there exists a connection between the worship of God and and his work in the lives of his people. So liturgy is certainly not irrelevant to Christian worship and daily living in that it intentionally connects the gathering of God's people to their daily lives in a timeless and a transcendent manner. And so liturgy provides a way for the church to daily live in the story of God. So first, what I want to do here today is define liturgy. Liturgy, in its broadest sense can be defined as an order of worship. And in that respect, rarely does a local church neglect to utilize a liturgy. Even uh, free traditions that might not plan their worship gatherings until Sunday morning, which I do not recommend, by the way, but there are many churches that do that, they likely have a broad order. I remember visiting a friend's church when I was in high school. We both played in a band together. And uh, he he went to a Pentecostal church, and um, they did not know uh, that the preacher likely knew sort of what he was speaking about, but even that was very much impromptu. Um, But they didn't know the the music they were going to do that morning. They would show up and and plan it as they went. Uh, But every Sunday, every time I went, there was some order of music, sermon, invitation. Almost every Sunday. That is a form of liturgy. And unless you're a Quaker, you probably have a liturgy at your church, whether you realize it or not. The historic order of worship that the church has used for centuries, until 
Churches started deviating from this uh, really in about the 18th or 19th century. Uh, the, but there, there are still many that use this. The historic order is gathering, word, table, sending. It's a fourfold order. And I don't suggest that one order is right and others are wrong, but I admit that in my experience, churches which are intentional about what they do tend to be more effective in worship and ministry. If you want to know the spiritual depth of a church, if you want to see the spiritual depth of a local church, look at how they worship. And so for the purposes here, liturgy should be understood as the historic use of a lectionary among Christian churches. And without arguing for the rightness or wrongness of a lectionary's use or the lack thereof, my aim here is to reveal the vast benefits of employing liturgy in Christian worship from the perspective of a free tradition, and uh, which which often does not utilize, a, you know, a free church often does not utilize a standard liturgy in the context of Christian worship, and so that's my aim here today. There are four primary points I want to discuss today, <clears throat> and um, four primary. Uh, imperatives related to this when I'm discussing the benefits of liturgy from a, uh, a free perspective and specifically related to living in the story of God. Um, and number one, worship tells the story of God. Number two, many so-called evangelical Bible churches neglect parts of God's story. Number three, worship and the gospel is Trinitarian and Christocentric. And number four, liturgy intentionally grants believers an opportunity to share Christ, or evangelism, daily. So let's dive into this. Number one, worship tells the story of God. Christian worship is designed to declare the story of God from beginning to end, including the church's eternal role in that story. And so every aspect of corporate worship... For example, the gathering, the word, the table, the sending, or whatever other elements you may have in there, even the sub-elements of those uh, services, every aspect of corporate worship plays a vital role in proclaiming the story of God and should be a part of a connected dialogue rather than disconnected pieces with no relation. How often have you been to a worship service where you hear the music, you sing the music, you hear the prayers, the sermon, there's no connection whatsoever. It was like it was just thrown together. Or or I'm often amazed when I hear a worship leader say, you know, I had no idea what the pastor was going to speak on, and I chose this song, and it just fit together so well. And I'm going, well, why didn't you plan it that way? I mean, it's good that it fit together, but why not plan it that way anyway? <laughs> but additionally, worship should be connected to life. In other words... Christian worship should be not uh, just um, a mere moment of the week to remove yourself from daily life, but should instead be a reflection of the church's daily life as she seeks to live within the eternal story of God. So what liturgy does is provide an intentional method of not only declaring the story of God, but also living within that story. And so... Whether utilizing a lectionary or another intentional method, liturgy is designed to create a seamless flow of events in the story of God. The scriptures presented, the prayers, the elements of corporate worship, for example, the music, the dramas, etc., 
Those should vividly tell a coherent story. And most churches implementing liturgy to some degree, uh, whether realized or not, as I've already mentioned, most churches have a liturgy, some sort of liturgy. Uh, Christmas tide is such an example. Most people don't call it Christmas tide because they don't celebrate an entire season. It's usually just one day. But although there are 12 days in Christmas, most Western churches gladly recognize Christ's birth on or around December 25th each year. Uh, you have some Eastern Orthodox churches that choose a different day. But December 25th is historically the day that the church has recognized Christ's birth. And this recognition is derived from a historic Liturgical, uh, liturgical celebration. It's not to imply that Christ was certainly born on December 25th, but the day is the chosen time the church has historically recognized the celebration of his birth. And so the celebration of Christ's birth is certainly a significant event in Christian history because God became flesh and entered humanity through a virgin's womb. And so if this event is worthy to be recognized, we should wonder why... Many other momentous occasions are neglected in many churches because the entirety of Christ's life and the biblical story of God is crucial and relevant to all of Christian life. And so I want to suggest some reasons uh, to answer that question. I think it's twofold. Uh, due to the mighty sway, I think, of cultural uh, relativity, many Western churches have forgone historic liturgical celebrations. Mother's Day, for example is certainly not a day set forth on the church calendar, nor should it be. But often around or even on the same day as Pentecost, many churches choose to recognize Mother's Day over the birthday of the church. And any thinking believer would likely conclude that Pentecost is certainly more important than Mother's Day, but the Hallmark holiday is often placed above the historic Christian celebration. Second reason I think that people forego other liturgical celebrations in an effort to disassociate from the Catholic Church, Protestants have gone too far in removing liturgical traditions. Liturgy, however, is not solely Catholic. You might hear that argument. In fact, even after the Reformation, most Protestant churches continued to substantially utilize liturgy. Uh, Martin Luther, for example... Um, utilized a liturgy. And the reason liturgy continued to be employed was a complete understanding that liturgy intentionally told the story of God and offered a path for God's people to daily live within that story. Uh, Martin Luther's liturgy, it was a Lutheran mass, did not include the creed, the, the Apostles' Creed. And, uh, you know, He's like many probably Protestant churches. He believed the creed. Our creed is what we believe in the Bible. And you know, I am not, um, I'm not hitting against creeds or confessions. In fact, I think creeds and confessions are very good. Uh, but my point is that even after the Reformation, church Protestant churches continued to use some sort of liturgy. Liturgical seasons, for example, Advent, Christmastide, Lent, Easter, Pentecost, and even ordinary time, give focus to Christian worship and intentionality to daily Christian living. Rather than a topically derived sermon, sermon series with little connection to daily life, liturgy allows God's people to live within a focus of God's story that has been recognized by the church for centuries. 
And so someone from a, a free tradition might initially be hesitant to give attention to these seasons, such as Lent. But the season itself reminds Christians of the biblical truth that all humanity is fallen flesh, and that one day we will return to the dust from which we are created. And additionally, and more importantly, I think, Lent reminds God's people that God alone is the source of sustenance and provision. Now, I could tell you that, and I would dare say that no Christian, Protestant, or Catholic should argue with those points at all. So why would we stray away from recognizing that? No Protestant or free tradition can argue with the, the truths presented in these liturgies. But it's, it's clear that, it, that liturgy is not designed to be owned by the Catholic tradition, but the Christian faith and the church universal. So the story of God is one story rather than individual moralistic stories in the Bible. We often divide the Bible up and think it's these little stories that make one complete book, but it is a meta story. The story of God includes the church universal today as well. Okay? We are a part of that story. And in a deliberate and complete manner, liturgy gives the church a way to focus on various aspects of God's story throughout the church year and therefore to live daily life within the realm of God's story. There is no formation without repetition. There is no formation without repetition. And so liturgy intentionally and methodically forms the people of God and practically provides an avenue of connection for the church to the story of God. So the free tradition benefits from its employment. My second point is many so-called evangelical churches neglect parts of God's story. Like so many, I was raised in an evangelical Bible church, in a Baptist church, and a free tradition that prided itself on being a church of the book, a people of the book, the Bible. Many of you have heard that. We're a people of the book. That's why we don't have creeds. <laughs> I would argue what is the Baptist faith and message but a confession, if you will. So, uh, But many churches neglect parts of God's story. We pride ourselves on being people of the book. Such a claim is often made by free Protestant churches and often in a way that excludes liturgical churches from that group as if liturgical churches don't hold the Bible at a place of utmost importance. And it's perhaps subconscious, but, you know, many people, many free traditions dismiss liturgical traditions as if to say that they do not, they are not people of the book. I came to realize later, however, that although my church prided itself on biblical authority, parts of God's story were neglected. I attended an ecumenical seminary in which I had classes with people from many traditions and from many parts of the world. So the perspectives that I gained were very rich. And I remember sitting beside an Anglican priest at one point and thinking to myself that this man loved Jesus as much as I did, if not more. It was shocking to me since my free tradition had truly and perhaps subconsciously dismissed liturgical traditions as something of lesser value. And many free churches claim to be people of the book, but the only scripture you often hear in worship uh, in the worship service is the sermon text. That's it. Many churches, you got, and I would say most of them, visit one today. 
that claims to be a people of the book, and the only scripture you will hear in the context of that corporate worship service is the sermon text. That is it. And if you attend a liturgical service, however, you will usually hear an Old Testament passage, usually a prophet, a psalm, an epistle, and a gospel each Sunday, and all of them connected with a central theme. And if you attend such a church for three years, you'll hear the entire Bible. And so perhaps biblical authority is missed in many free traditions because liturgical worship is saturated with Scripture. And this saturation reminds believers of every part of God's story, which is often missed in free churches. Pentecost has already been mentioned, but there are other celebrations that are often missed. For example, Trinity Sunday, Christ the King Sunday, Ascension Day, the Transfiguration. These events in the life of Christ are no less significant than his birth or his resurrection. The the church would do well to remember them, to remember them and recount them. Liturgy intentionally does so. A common argument from free traditions is that liturgical celebrations besides Christmas and Easter are not as important. But to be a people of the book is to consider every word of Scripture of equal importance. In other words, the words of Paul are no less important than the words of Jesus, because truly, all of Scripture is the Word of God. And if every word of Scripture is of equal importance, all events, especially in the life of Christ, are worth being recognized. One reason many Bibles are going to doing away with red-letter editions is because it's all the Word of God. They don't want people to get the idea that just because Jesus said it, that it's somehow more important in that book than the other words. They're all equal. And to neglect certain events in Scripture is to neglect the superiority of the Bible. Jesus' transfiguration is a significant event in the story of God and the recognition of the Trinity It's crucial for all believers, and Christ's ascension is vital in that it reminds Christians of Jesus' humanity. uh, humanity. A broader but more thorough approach is necessary for churches to contend to be people of the book. Perhaps if local churches would consider what they think is important in the story of God, um, in other words, if all events are of equal importance and hold a purpose or if certain parts are more important than others, if they would consider how they approach that, they might find out that, you know what, maybe we are not as much a people of the book as we thought. And to pick and choose which parts of God's story are more or less important is no better than picking and choosing which parts of Scripture are more or less important, which there are churches that do that today, unfortunately. Liturgy dissolves human motivation and instead... Tested and tried throughout church history grants God's people a way to declare and participate in the complete story of God. What it does is it removes the the human influence, and it has been tested and tried for the by the church for centuries. So we know it works. My third imperative here is that worship and the gospel is Trinitarian and Christocentric. The gospel is certainly centered around Christ and his work. But the work of the Father and the Spirit are also vital. So to say that the gospel is Christocentric is to confess that while the Father and the Spirit are equally uh, vital, uh, Jesus is the mediator. So it's not dismissing the mediation of Jesus Christ. My observations 
uh, have led me to conclude that most modern churches lack a Trinitarian dialogue in their worship experience. Most often, there tends to be an unbalanced focus on the Son alone and secondarily the Father. But even in circles where the Holy Spirit might be assumed to be over for example, charismatic traditions, He is frequently forgotten or neglected. Liturgy focuses Christian worship in such a way that the dialogue becomes intentionally Trinitarian. And so I would dare suggest that the thoughtless and irresponsible verbiage I've heard in worship, uh, which are theologically lacking and even wrong, exist in most churches. Thanking the Father for dying for the sins of believers, for example, should be unacceptable. But it's thoughtless. People just pray and pray whatever they want. Worship is Trinitarian, and so each person of the Godhead must be approached with a specific uh, specific role in mind. And contrary to the opinions of many, every word in worship matters. In other words, Christians should not assume that anything said in the context of worship is acceptable if it's from the heart, because believers are commanded to love God with the heart, the soul, the mind, and the strength. And when the church approaches the worship space... She is approaching God himself, and one would likely not come to uh, come unprepared to a legal hearing, a court hearing, for example. Even more, God's people should be as prepared as possible for worshiping God Most High with the understanding that although imperfection is inevitable, it should not be a reason to dismiss theological accuracy. I heard someone the other day teaching a child how to pray, and uh, this was well-intended, but they said, all you're doing is talking to God. Really, that's all you're doing. (laughs) You're talking to God. That's it. As if that's no big deal. That is a huge deal. Liturgy intentionally focuses on Trinitarian work so that no person of the Godhead is neglected. For example, in the the Revised Common Lectionary on the fifth Sunday after Pentecost for year B, which is today, (laughs) the collect prayer is as follows. It says this, Almighty God, you have built your church upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Grant to us, or grant us so to be joined together in unity of spirit by their teaching, that we may be made a holy temple acceptable to you through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. End quote. Even in the prayers of the people, then, the worship gathering is set with a mind of Trinitarian theology. And so worship could be crafted with a Trinitarian focus, but liturgy provides a tried-and-true method the church has utilized for centuries that carefully and strategically leads God's people in Trinitarian worship. Precise and accurate worship should include the Father, the Son, and the Spirit with no neglect shown to any person of the Godhead. Liturgy provides an avenue for such precision in a way that is past the theological and historical tests. And it's vital that worship is employed in the power of the Holy Spirit through Christ the Mediator to the glory of God the Father. Worship is Trinitarian. Liturgy is Trinitarian. Liturgy calculatedly offers God's people a path to write Trinitarian worship. So my final imperative here related to this, the benefits of liturgy as it relates to living in the story of God, is that liturgy intentionally grants believers an opportunity to share Christ or evangelism on a daily basis. 
Missions and evangelism is crucial to the daily lives of believers. Because believers, Christians are commanded to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's that's not an option. We are commanded to do so. And so liturgy is not primarily about formality, but rather practicality. So the purpose of liturgy and a church calendar is an avenue for God's people to live daily in the story of God, because everyone in God's family is included in that story. Therefore, liturgy gives believers an opportunity to share Christ and to share with Christ daily as they live in God's story. They are playing an active role in that. Through repetition comes formation, and through formation comes conformity to the image of Christ. Repetition, however, should be employed in a focused manner. During the season of Advent, believers focus primarily on the second coming of Christ. And because of such a focus, believers should conform their lives to preparedness, joy, hope, and an eager expectation. And with those attitudes, the church naturally portrays to the world the hope that is shared in Christ. Similar focuses of attitude may be observed in other liturgical seasons. Even the biblical texts and prayers spoken during individual Sunday worship gatherings should give believers a change of heart and mind that radiates to the external parts of their lives so that Christ is shared with the world in a relevant way. Liturgy is but a method. It's intentional, but not right or wrong. Again, my purpose here is to present the benefits of liturgy, but individual believers hold a responsibility for liturgy liturgy to work as designed. Christians need to realize their own responsibilities in conformity to the image of Christ. In other words, the liturgy itself will not change God's people. Believers should experience worship with a devoted focus and a connection to their own daily lives. Liturgy in the story of God, then, or living in the story of God, Christians possess a link between daily rhythms of life and the gospel message. So as you worship, there is a connection between what is happening in Christian worship and your daily life. And the gospel message is conveyed to the world. And you share Christ with a world that is so blind to that connection. Liturgy, though it is old, is tested and tried and certainly relevant to all believers, no matter the season, the age, or the stage of life. And not to be canonized, I'm not saying liturgy needs to be canonized or placed on the same level of authority as Scripture itself. Liturgy is crucial since it is derived from Scripture and centers around the Word, Jesus himself. Liturgy is a guide to ensure right worship to triune God by his people. Evangelism's purpose is worship. And so evangelism must begin with worship, and God's people must worship rightly. Said another way, good theology begins with good doxology. You could say it's cyclic, because good theology should end with good doxology as well. (laughs) It's cyclic. Everything begins and ends with worship. Worship is life. And if Christians desire to share Christ with people effectively and rightly, they must first come to a place of right worship themselves. And so liturgy provides a guide to right worship and affords the church an opportunity to seek God, live in the story of God, 
and share the Christ of that story with the world. In conclusion, most of us have had experiences of someone telling us a story that should be much shorter than it was. I'm thinking of a person right now, maybe you are too, that does that. Most stories go from point A to point B, and these people tend to add all kinds of other stops in the middle of that. And for reasons unseen to us, the storyteller, whether it's friends, family, acquaintances, or someone we just met, uh, the storyteller feels the need to add irrelevant details and perhaps even put his or her own perspective at the forefront of the story, causing the substance of the story to be lost. A similar result often occurs in Christian worship. Rather than simply declaring the story of God, the substance is lost in the extra elements added by perhaps well-meaning people who think that it needs something extra. God's story, however, stands on its own. Tested and tried for centuries of church history, liturgy grants a deliberate method of telling the story through the dialogue exercised in Christian worship. And to declare the full counsel of God, liturgy paves a pathway, the work of which has already been completed. We don't have to do anything else. Just follow the guide. Be obedient to the Spirit, yes, but follow the guide. Christians may now use what has been provided by centuries of church history so that they may reap the benefits in Christian worship. So I tell you today, as someone coming from a free tradition who discovered this later in life, that liturgy has its own benefits to Christian worship. And I wish more churches, especially free churches, would utilize liturgy. Uh, Hopefully this has had some sort of impact on you. I'm going to continue this series over the next few weeks and give you a plurality of reasons for uh, liturgy and and benefits of liturgy from the perspective of a free tradition. So uh, thank you for listening today to the Act of Worship podcast. This is Dr. Jonathan Michael Jones.